the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 494 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We're going to have an interesting conversation today. I've got uh, Dr. John Deloney from the Ramsey team on. Tell you all about that in just a minute. Oh, and today's episode has a PG-13 rating on it. So if you usually listen with kids in the car, well, um, I'm just giving you a heads up. Anyway, today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. If you are a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, apply for their growth program today by going to promediafire.com slash growth. And by the Unstuck Group. Learn how the Unstuck Group can help your church reach more people by going to the unstuckgroup.com slash start. So why the PG-13 rating? Well, we're going to talk with Dr. John Deloney on why married people have stopped having sex, theological malpractice, what does that mean, and why so many young leaders are angry. So John has some strong background in psychology. And uh, well, I think one of the most important elements you can do in leadership is personal growth, just self-development. And I mean that spiritually, I mean that emotionally, I mean that relationally. So we kind of talk about all of those things and much more today. And uh, John Deloney is a national best-selling author, a mental health and wellness expert, and host of the Dr. John Deloney Show. He holds two PhDs, one in counselor education and supervision, another in higher education administration. We get into his background, why he got those PhDs, how this came about. And before joining Ramsey Solutions, John spent two decades working as a senior leader at multiple universities as a professor and researcher and as a crisis responder. Now as a Ramsey personality, he teaches people how to reclaim their lives from the madness of the modern world and from their past. So I think you'll enjoy it. Hey, we're also uh, getting really close to 500 episodes. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you haven't left a rating and review, I would ask you to do that. Could you do that wherever you're listening right now on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever? Head on over and just uh, just leave a rating and review. We love them and we love to see them and it helps get the word of the show out. So whether you're running a business, a church or a nonprofit, here's an important question that will help determine your digital success. What is more important, online content or strategy? The key to growth online is actually strategy because content is everywhere. So your strategy for creative design, social media, and online pathways is vital to drive growth. But the challenge is, how do you do it with a limited budget, lack of knowledge, or an internal team that's already overwhelmed? And that's where ProMedia Fire can help. They have an entire team of professionals providing digital strategy and creative frameworks to help you grow online. Right now, ProMedia Fire is accepting applications for their growth program. The team will interview applicants and work with a select group. You can submit your application for their growth program today by going to promediafire.com growth. That's promediafire.com growth. And if you want to lead a healthy growing church that continually reaches new people and helps them take steps toward Christ, well, what do you need? You need a clear vision, an effective ministry strategy, and a high-impact team. And you're going, okay, how do I get that? Well, that's where the Unstuck Group can help. The Unstuck Group has a proven track record of helping churches of all shapes and sizes create healthy growth for more than 11 years now. In fact, 
The Unstuck team has helped 500 plus churches clarify their vision, where they believe God's called them to go, and their strategies, how they're going to get there. And in the process, they've found health again. Six months after completing the Unstuck process, nine out of 10 pastors say they would recommend the Unstuck group to another church because they're already seeing results. So if you want to learn more and get started, have a conversation today by going to theunstuckgroup.com slash start. That is theunstuckgroup.com slash start. Well, uh, I hope you'll agree with me that uh, I find conversations fascinating and never boring, and this one is definitely in that category. Here is my conversation with Dr. John Deloney. John, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. You are the best. Thank you for being so hospitable, man. <laughs> I'm great. To, I'm so happy to be here. So just before we hit record, you told me about a little more about your background. Your dad was a pastor, but after he what? <laughs> yeah, so... When I was born, my dad was a homicide detective and a SWAT hostage negotiator in for the Houston Police Department. He was he was a bad dude. And then about halfway through my childhood, um, he always volunteered with the youth at various things in the community and at the big church we went to. And the church called him in one weekend and said, hey, uh, the youth minister is leaving and we'd love to offer you this job. And he took it over a weekend. And so, yeah, the next 20 years, 17, 18 years, something like that. I mean, it seemed like forever, but then he became a youth minister of a giant church there in Houston and had hundreds of kids and that, and, and it's very similar to his detective work, let's be honest, um, for most pastors, but, um, <laughs> the parents would yeah, have him on man, the take, he, right? Find out what my son is really oh, up to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And so, uh, it was a wild childhood. I had a cop and a man. My therapist loves me because I had a cop and a pastor for a parent, right? That's that's crazy. I mean, obviously, that's your dad's story, not yours. But that's a really big pivot from homicide detective to pastor. Yeah, he, here's where it's been one of the greatest blessings of my life. My mom also was raised in a household. Um, and again, this is I don't want to speak negatively, but the the women didn't need to go to college. You, oh, had, a, okay. you had a role in a job and this is what was going to be when you get out. And at the age of 41 or 42, she took her first community college class. My dad was always saying, hey, hey, it's okay. Like, let's do this. Let's do this. And she just never, like, ah, I don't know. She took her first community college class at 42 and then took another one and then took another one. She graduated at 57 with her PhD. Uh -huh. And she's been a department head at an English department at a fancy faith-based university. And she's 72 now. And so she had this wild second life. And so I have these two pictures of these two folks who say, this is what I'm put on earth to do. This is what I'm going to be about. Ooh, but I'm going to go this way. I'm going to follow this wild call to the left or to the right. I'm just going to take a wild turn here. And then all of a sudden I found myself in my early forties with, I run into Dave Ramsey's executive VP at a college event. And she's like, you're coming to work for us. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be a YouTuber. And here I am, man, here I am. So I had this beautiful picture of do the next fun, right, scary thing in front of you. Yeah. So that's interesting. I was, I was asking how you got connected at Ramsey. So again, like so many people I talked to, everybody started something in February of March or, or February or March of 2020. It's like, you know, great time for a career change. So you moved from Texas to Nashville <laughs> And uh, tell us about your first two decades. Well, you were in higher education as well. So I graduated college and I wanted to be a movie star. And that uh, you could see, you could see my face. That didn't work out. And I became a high school teacher. 
And I was a high school teacher and a basketball and track coach for a few years. And then I taught K through five for one year at a small private school there in Houston. And then I ended up working at my alma mater as a, at, at the university as an associate dean of students. And that began a almost two-decade career working behind closed doors as a with students and their families when things were just falling apart and with my fellow administrators and professors. And, um, and then I just kept moving along and moving along. Um, I want to be a college president someday. That was kind of the trajectory I was on. And I got a, my fancy pants doctorate degree. And there's nothing worse, Carrie, than someone who just graduates with their graduate degree. The worst. How so? It's on everybody's email signature. They tell everybody. Right. It's just so like, come on, man. Dandaloni, um, comma, I, PhD. I was that guy. Yeah. Comma. No, the worst is comma, master's degree, comma, whatever. So the more commas, yeah, it's just, it's a directly proportional to your, to your self-esteem. But that was me. I was super that guy. And then, um, man, I had a fancy job at a faith-based university. My wife was a professor. We had a little kid and I was really crushing it, to be honest with you. I was, the business of Deloney was good. And I come from a family. We didn't make a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. We were, my wife and I were making more money than my parents could ever wrap their head around. And I was fancy pants, fancy pants, trying to earn and achieve. And then all of a sudden, man, my body fell apart. Yeah. And um, I, I found myself experiencing things that I'd never heard. I'd heard of them, but they were for other people, like anxiety. And like, I can't get out of bed. And like, I don't even want to be doing this anymore. And would people be better if I wasn't, you know what I mean? I started really getting down the path there. And so the next decade was about, I went, I took another job. We transitioned out. How old were you when that happened, when things started to fall apart, John? Uh, it was between 33, 35, somewhere around there. Um, can, you, can you break that down? I want the rest of the narrative, but I'd love to, Yeah, I mean, you open your book with that a little bit. Was that around yeah. the time where you're crawling outside in the rain looking for your house yeah, to split that's apart? Right. That's, that's about that time. So my job was showing up when the wheels had fallen off everybody else's life. Yeah. And you say basically so as a I, dean, you're a cop. Like you're you're just there because things fell apart, right? For well, you're both student. a cop and an ambulance and a counselor and a but you're not trained in any of those things. And so you're <laughs> you, you know, you're kind of just directing traffic and you're a presence. And um, but yeah, I spent my whole life was spent in other people's trauma. And so I was at hospitals a couple of nights a week. I wasn't sleeping at all. Huh. And most importantly, is I was running from I didn't know how to be a new dad. I wasn't a bad husband, but I wasn't good at it. And I didn't know any other path other than just keep going harder and keep running. And so when they were like, hey, we need someone to, to teach Sunday school, I was like, I, I got that. And wow. hey, the the college ministry, I'm on that. And can someone leave this big convocation program every week? I'll do that too. Hey, we need a professor. Would you mind teaching grad school this year? I got that too. So my life became about ribbons and stars and trophies and accomplishments and achievements. And the one thing that I kept feeling along the way was my body saying, Hey, you got to stop. You can't, there's not enough money to earn here. There's what, I mean, you're using these ministerial platforms to try to make yourself to prop up yourself and it's going to fall down on you and those oh. people that you're trying to walk alongside. And ultimately the, I mean, I, I, this sounds such a Hollywood ending. This is how it happened. I was, I had sold my house. I thought I'd predicted the next housing collapse. I sold my house, moved my wife and kid. I was like the beautiful mind, dude. I was I was mad. And here's the thing. Can I tell you this, Gary? Yeah, yeah. I, I was bonkers and I still showed up to work every day. I was still doing good work. I was a I was electrified. People didn't like being around me a lot, but I was fun to be around. 
What, what does that mean? This, electrified people didn't like that. That means I was always the guy in the meeting going, "Oh yeah, but what about this?" I was always the guy in the meeting being like, "Uh, uh-uh, well, I read this study. This I it, I got my self esteem by can I be the smartest person in this room?" And if you're working at a university, you'll never be the smartest person in the like right. Huh. And so I was always trying to out. And if I couldn't outsmart, then I'd undercut. And if I couldn't undercut, I'd go around. I was always trying to. What about this? What about this? I couldn't ever just be present. And so my wife tells me in her gentle way, you were a lot, you were a lot. Um, and the men, the young ministers that I've mentored and been around since then, I see that a lot. There's this sense of, I can't say the words I don't know. Let me find out. And so I find myself down these theological rabbit holes, or I find myself down these leadership rabbit holes, or I listen to a podcast and watch a Ted talk and call myself an expert and I find myself way out over my skis when I'm trying to help a young mom who's just lost her child. Like, I don't know how to do that. Uh-huh. Um, a friend of mine just gave me this line, and it's haunted me. Uh, he was a professor in an MDiv program somewhere in the country, and he said, if somebody hires one of our MDiv graduates, this is his words, and I, I love it, and it's haunting. They are committing theological malpractice. Whoa. Because I've trained somebody to take apart texts and I've trained somebody to give an argument. I've not trained somebody on how to care for people who are hurting. Ooh. And that was a heavy, like just whoosh, right? And so that, that, was, that was me in that season. That was me, that was me, that was me. Just running and proving and proving and running and arguments and this, what about that? And finally, man, my body just said, I'm out, I'm out, I'm done. And people, we can call that burnout, we can call that anxiety, we can call that exhaust. We, I don't care what word we use. My body just said, I'm out, I'm done. So I want to get to that, but um, I do like coming back to the subject on this podcast, but drive, because, yeah. you know, podcasts are listened to disproportionately by driven people. We have a lot of leaders here. When you look back on your life now, knowing what you know now, where did that drive come from and what parts of it were healthy and what was unhealthy? Oh, I love that you brought that up because there's a there's an elegant, beautiful tension between that. Um, and yeah, let's, let's put a pin in the, in the tension there. Um, I think my drive, if, if I'm honest, it goes back to just childhood. I think most of us get a model and picture of what childhood's supposed to look like. And I, the, the picture I picked up when I was a kid was you're not enough, but you can outrun it. And I was a, I was a good athlete and I was not, my sister was wicked smart. My brother missed like two, my younger brother missed like two questions on the ACT smart. He was, uh, so I wasn't like that, but I could get by. And, um, I was able to get, I was funny. I was loud. Right. So I could just kind of wing it through life with this underlying sense of you are phoning it in. And the moment they catch you, dude, it's all up. And so I lied a lot as a kid. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. I lied a lot. I exaggerated all the time and I would steal stuff. I mean, I was always about the rules don't apply. How quickly can I get through this thing? How can I cut corners here? How can I make sure that I'm the biggest firework in the display bin? Right. And it was just an exhausting track meet of a life. Did you know you were tired? No, goodness, no. I, I interpreted that, that fatigue as cowardice or weakness or um, you should probably get another book. You read another, go get another degree. That'll help it, right? 
uh, yeah, it, it just was hollow, man. If you don't look back, the the shadow won't catch you. And you just run and run and run and run. I didn't understand how heavy carrying a kid would be. I didn't understand how how heavy trying to be a good married person would be. I didn't a lot of work. realize how heavy leadership was when you have a team of people who look at you and say, where are we going? Um, yeah. Or thousands of students that parents drop off with a massive bill. Like they're, they're, they're mortgaging their souls to you literally saying, please take care of my kid. I didn't realize how heavy that stuff was. You can't outrun the shadows, man. When you're carrying that, that type of ex- existential weight. What is your doctorate in? I have one in education and one in counseling. Okay. And why, which came first? The education one. The joke is always, <laughs> this is how, how dumb I was. Um, I, it was all about the credential. I didn't really uh, care to learn anything. I just needed that certificate on my wall so that I could say doctor in front of my name. So then I could finally feel valued around my peers. And I just need to be able to say doctor or whatever. And so let's get the, let's get the, what's the first thing I can get a degree in that I can work full time. It was not about learning. The counseling one came because I broke, I was an ash and I wanted to know what happened to me, what's happening to my family, to my friends and my community. That was a much richer, deeper experience for me because um, it was out of desperation. That was, I got to know what's going on here. So you're in maybe your early thirties, locate it for me if I've got it wrong. Um, you're convinced your house is going to crack. You're in Texas. Do you want to pick up the story? That was a really interesting story. Yeah. So I, I latched into a thing and the thing was, huh, I've never noticed that, that little crack, settling crack above that door over there. I look over to, there's one over there. There's one over there. If I back up a little bit, my wife and I owed six figures in student loan debt from our big fancy degrees. My body was telling me, you're not safe. You have no business buying a house. Y'all just bought two new cars like ding-dongs. We are not safe because if we get fired tomorrow, the bank comes for all of us, right? I mean, it was it was that kind of, my body's trying to get my attention. You had a lot of I just debt. Kept moving. I had a ton of debt. Um, I had now passed, I was, um, I, I'm saying this with all respect. My father's one of the most extraordinary men. He never ran organizations. And so what I found myself was, I found myself leading a couple of hundred people, making a big chunk of money, and I didn't have anyone to turn to for wisdom. I hadn't sure. cultivated that. And normally, I could ask my dad, how do I fix the car? How do I mow the lawn? Hey, there's a police officer here. What do I say? My dad was brilliant for that. But once I got outside the scope of that relationship, I was on my own. Hmm. So then I tried to, to fake it. I tried to read enough books. I didn't have those relationships that someone could walk alongside me and say, hey, what do I do now? What's, what comes next? And so I just found myself out on an island. And instead of swimming back to shore saying, whoa, I found myself all by myself out there. I just said, this is my island. This is how this is going to be. And then in the midst of that, um, and again, I, I anxiety, depression, OCD, all the ADHD, those are just, our body just trying to get our attention. That we're, we're, things aren't okay. And I ignored all that stuff. And there's a world now that just, I mean, just sells distraction. That's just the world we're in. And so we can wallpaper over and we can take those alarms that are ringing and duct tape over the alarms in our kitchen. And we can just go about our day because we don't hear the alarm anymore, but they're still ringing, man. And then I bought a house 
And the house was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the three bedroom, two bath <laughs> dream that my body said, we can't do this anymore. And that's when I started saying, hey, I, there's a crack there. And there's one there. Oh, this thing's falling apart. And for some reason, my body latched onto that story. And I had contractors come over. I had friends come over. I'd walk them through. I'd show them the cracks in the grout. I'd show them the crack. And dude, this is Texas. It's a brand new house. Everything settles. Everything was great. The house was great. Uh -huh. I've driven, I drove by it a few years ago. It's perfect, man. It's wonderful. But the story in my head, and if I fast forward now and look around, when I look at this political party, this group of people, this is the next big threat to the church or to leadership or to what we've just, there's somebody that's going to sell us a story about why we feel the way we do. Huh. And mine was that all of the earth's finances were going to fall down and apart and turn to ash. And we were all going to be shooting our neighbor for water and eating our dogs, whatever. I mean, I just created these caustic stories but it all came from this house. And this, as the story goes, I was um, crawling around on my, on my hands and knees behind some bushes looking for cracks in the foundation one night when it was raining because I was convinced that when it rained, it was going to flood through these cracks. And I was crawling around on my hands and knees at 2 a.m. I was in my underwear. I had like a flashlight in my mouth. And again, I'm, I wasn't crazy. That's the thing. I wasn't, I didn't need to go to psych. I just was fully in on this. And I remember sitting there and in the rain, and I just started laughing and crying at the same time. And because of my thought was, oh, this is when they would call me and tell me right. to come sit with somebody. <laughs> right. I, I was like, oh, no. And so the next morning, um, I reached out to a couple friends there at the university I worked at who are, I still love and I cherish to this day. And, um, and then I got in my car one morning walking to work. I, we sold the house. And then one day I got my car and drove to another city and sat down with my buddy who was a doctor and said, I need some help, man. And that was, that started the journey back. So yeah, you became fixated with any crack or flaw you saw in the house, convinced yeah. it was going to fall apart. Um, you're out in the pouring rain thinking that's it. My whole house is going to get flooded away. And it finally dawns on you that all the friends, all the experts, all the contractors were right. There's nothing wrong with your house. And it was just something. Well, so there wasn't this, I'll tell you this. I, what I realized was in that moment, and um, it's hard to articulate this in a book. Yeah. I wasn't fully there. Okay. But I realized enough to know I might be the problem here. Okay. And that was the, that was the crack in the, that was the, the first somebody moved the curtain just a little bit to let that little bit of ray of sunshine in. Maybe it's me. And I kept thinking it's, the contractors are idiots. My friends don't know what they're talking about. All these people are more, I've got this figured out. How can you not see what I see here? And that was the first day I thought, oh, it may be me. Maybe it's me. So definitely not a psychologist, not trained the way you are. Yeah. But we, I often see, and I think I'm seeing frequent, more frequent examples of people who zero in on an issue. So you've got someone, if you click on their profile, they leave basically the same comment on everyone's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. It's like they've got one issue and they're just like, you know, away attacking yes. people or they get really narrowed in on something and they can't let it go. Is that a That's sign exactly that something's right. wrong? Like, what is that? If you've got that like obsession with something? 1000%. Okay. Anytime you find yourself saying the words, if they would just, I don't care who they is and I don't care what the just is. Anytime oh. you find yourself be like, if they would just, the problem is probably in the mirror. 
it's probably not them because the world's too complex. There's too much, things are too stacked on each other right now. Everything's anti-fragile. So every, I mean, everything's fragile right now. It's all, so to just point at one thing, if this family would just leave the congregation, we'd be okay. It wouldn't. You know why? Because you'd still be there. If this one, if the bass player would just pick it up, nope, it wouldn't because you'd find something wrong with the keyboard. Player. So anytime you find yourself saying that, it's probably you. And you know, the worst are is the nutrition warriors and political. I mean, there's a few things that, man, it doesn't matter what anybody posts. They're, they they got to lob that grenade in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's just, oh, it's just a few groups, man. Right, uh, right. We can talk right. about this offline someday. If you but, would only, um, if you would only yeah. cut out carbs, if you would only, you know, if you don't really understand this understanding of God, blah, 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 whatever that is. Yes. If you just went to this church or if you just read this scripture the right way, or if you just got a degree at this place, then all this would, okay, thanks, man. Have a good day. That is really interesting. Do you think that this is a bigger issue now where people get tripped up over the one thing or, or the other thing, you know, there's sort of a meme going around that all the people who were epidemiologists for the last two years are now experts on war, are now experts <laughs> on, right? But there's that, okay, yes. I'm going to move my issue, but like I have to deliver to my platform expert opinion on stuff I pretty much know nothing about. So when, when our bodies go to fight or flight, and you may have heard this, you may have had people on your podcast talk about this. Yeah. One of the beautiful things when our brains go to fight or flight, so why, why do we have fight or flight? It's designed for, uh, we're sleeping in a cave and a bear shows up at the front. Right. And it's designed to instantly pick up a stick and go to war against that thing or to sh- sprint out the back door. And if it can't do one of those two things, right, then it freezes and there's a couple other things, but that's the main thing. And it freezes so that that bear will bite off one of our legs, drag us out and hide us under a pile of leaves and maybe we can survive and live to fight another day tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. When our brains move to fight or flight, it literally unhooks, and again, I hate these mechanistic metaphors, but here's where we are. It unhooks your logical thinking brain. It does. Your brain doesn't want you looking at the bear and going, huh, I wonder if that's a nice bear or if that's the <laughs> hugging bear. I heard there's a hugging bear around here because if it, you're wrong, it eats you. And right. so it unhooks that, and that's how a kid carrying a cell phone in the middle of the night in a dark alley gets shot because- Somebody has told that police officer, somebody's got a gun and they're armed and dangerous and scary. And that police officer's heart is beating fast. And then a kid pops up and pulls their phone out and their brain goes close enough. We're going home. Right. Mm. And so it trades, it trades accuracy for speed. And so here's where we are. We're all in fight or flight 24 seven. We're not sleeping. We're just pumping this stuff in our heads over and over and over again, all day, all day, all day. We are living lives that are 100% visible all the time because we've built glass houses for ourselves with social media. Yeah. And we just stand in front of them and, and then our bodies are going, you're exposed, you're exposed, you're exposed. And it stays in fight or flight all the time. And when we do that, we lose the ability to take perspective and we latch on to a fear and our, depending on our experiences and our genetics, our body goes, that's a fear. And what's beautiful in my life is I traced the economic obsession back to my childhood. And we had some major financial issues when I was a kid that caused fights. And I scared me when I was a kid. And here my body was replaying this story 25 years later. Um, oh, we know what happens when there's money fights. Everything falls apart. Everybody gets angry. But like, we got to watch out for this one, right? So my body remembered the story. It just found a new avenue to, 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 to write it down, right? To tell that story again. And we all do this. We are learning an awful lot about 
um, the body and how it's related to the mind. And I really appreciate those conversations. Um, you talk about trauma in your book and you talk to a lot of people about trauma, probably back to the university now with Dave Ramsey on the show, et cetera, et cetera. Um, leaders have been through so much in the last two years. Plus they've got their childhoods to unpack. Can you explain to our listeners how trauma is like, it's not a question of if trauma is impacting them. It's a question of how is trauma impacting them? Agree or disagree? And then what does that look like? And how do you recognize it? Oh man, that's such a great question. So I, let me, let me do a couple of things. So all trauma is to distill it down is when something is going on that exceeds our body's built-in systems to handle it. Okay. And that's, it's just when our systems are like, here's a threat and it exceeds our body's abilities to handle that threat are over, overrun. Most trauma, most of the time is not the thing that happened. It's our okay. body remembering in the present what happened, the story it has told itself about what happened. Um, memories about traumatic events are notoriously off. Mm. And I've heard that weaponized. I probably didn't even have, I don't care. The fact is I'm looking at somebody in front of me right now who is in deep distress and they deserve peace. They deserve healing. So let's be here now, right? Um, and so I thought trauma was always acute. I thought it was these huge grenades that went off, the big divorce, the big infidelity, the death of mom, whatever happened. The abuse, something then, that happened that yeah, was the, traumatic. The, yeah, the, in, in the systemic abuse, the, yeah, the sexual abuse, the, all those. I thought that was the trauma. And um, I've had my personal experiences with that stuff. I've walked alongside people. The, 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 the big shift for me was my friend, her name's Dr. Lynn Jennings, and she's a trauma researcher, um, but she researches a special niche that I didn't know existed. She called it secondary trauma, secondary traumatic stress. And the word she gave me, I'll never forget being in class with her and my, a light bulb went off. She said, trauma is both acute and it's cumulative. It adds up on you. And it's about the final weight. So the way I describe that is trauma can be somebody throwing a cinder block at you, or it can be you with a backpack on and every day, you just go downstairs and your mom's just scrolling that phone and you're just saying, hey, mom, look at this picture. And she goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, beautiful. And that little six-year-old girl's body is wondering, why won't my mom look at me? Why is my dad, why is it my job to make sure daddy doesn't yell? I'll try. I, it's my job to make sure daddy doesn't get angry. Huh. And that body where it gets it's a pebble in the bag, a pebble. And over, over a lifetime, the weight of that trauma, those cinder blocks versus those pebbles, the weight is the same. Mm. And so then you're 32 and you're running a church and every day you get 11 emails telling you what a lame job you're doing or you misinterpreted this or you should watch this YouTube clip because this is the real truth or have you heard about the great reset pastor? <laughs> and oh my gosh, did you hear so-and-so voted for whatever's happening? And you get this all day, every day, and it's a pebble, and it's a pebble, and then you're going to church, and, and then you're preparing your sermon, knowing that that one family is going to side-eye you the whole time. Then you got to visit so-and-so in the hospital, but you can't because they want you to wear a mask, and your church said you can, whatever the thing is. And then your body just eventually leans over and says, I can't carry this anymore. And it comes out in a bunch of different ways, right? That's that's the, the cumulative nature of trauma is what I want, especially pastors who are listening— that's what I that's what I see most often is they're carrying around everybody else's stuff. 
It's such a helpful definition because you're right. That's something we've all dealt with. I would love to talk about how the body reacts. Almost every leader I talk to, um, it's increasingly common to have panic attacks, sleep disorders. Um, I did a little poll with a group I was coaching and I'm like, just, I don't know, it got really intimate. And it's like, how many people need something to sleep at night? And almost every hand in the group went up. And, you know, it's like, whoa. And I learned that the hard way. When I was 41, I burned out. And it's like, I wasn't going to stop. My brain was going, my heart was going, but my body's like, okay, we, we're done here. You're an idiot. (laughs) You're running way too hard. We quit. And I went through six months of burnout. I won't go into a long story. A lot of listeners have heard it too many times, but it changed my life. Hey man, you you got six years faster than me. (laughs) I mean, you went six years longer than I did. You're way, you're stronger than me, man. There you go. You hit it around 35, right? So, but (laughs) but what were the, what were the physical symptoms? Just so, and what what were yours, and then what are typical symptoms for people who are are struggling with with trauma? Um, gotta be pretty direct on this podcast. Yeah, hundred percent. Is that cool? Yep. Um, these are all directional signals that someone's not okay. Okay. Um, when again, there's medical diagnostics, there's all kinds of things going on in the human body these days, but directionally speaking. There's a couple of core things our bodies are designed to do that are even on protected circuits, if you will. Hmm. If you're taking medication to go to the bathroom, if you're taking medication to have to be intimate with your spouse, if you're taking medication to sleep, that's a sign that there may be something going on psychosomatic. There may be something going on in your heart or your mind or your body that you need to go sit down and say, hey, what's going on? What is the ecosystem I've created here? Hmm. If you can't, be present with your kids for more than 10 minutes. If you find yourself driving down the road and you, somebody gets in front of you a little bit and you find yourself so raged out, right? Here's a good one. If you are at a little league game and you find yourself angry at the high school ref, that's a you problem. (laughs) If you're at a dance recital and you find yourself swearing under your breath at the person who held up the 7.9 and it should have been a 9.1. What? That's you. That is not Uh them. That's Uh you. If you find yourself on your fourth Netflix series this month, that's you. (laughs) If you find yourself reaching for another drink and another drink or another piece of pizza, if you find yourself choosing Netflix over intimacy with your spouse, when somebody's the one I hear a lot is people have stopped being intimate. They stopped having sex. Yeah. Married couples are just stopped. Um, Why is that? Stopped. Let, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that. I think two things. One, I think we've become great co-managers of our homes mm. and we have become, yeah, we're just coworkers now. Like you got this, I got this, you do this. I'm going to block this guy. I'm, you pass the ball here. I'll be wide open over here. I'm going to run this route. I mean, we've just, we've diagrammed our houses and we have to, because we filled it so full of nonsense, so full of busyness and insanity that we have to run it like a company now. Um, and so there's no room for intimacy. Yeah. I think the bigger issue is this. This is a 50 year problem. All up until human history before 50 years ago. And again, I'm speaking loosely here. You got married for two reasons. One, because your parents wanted to expand their empire or it was some political connection. And so they pawned you off somehow mm-hmm. for many goats or whatever. Or you married somebody 
because you were going to die young, they were going to die young, and we can get through this thing, miserable, awful, brutish, short life together, and uh-huh. we'll make some kids, and we'll grow some turnips, right? And then 50, in over, my, my grandparents celebrated 72 years of marriage before they passed away. Unbelievable. They became each other's arms and legs, right? They became the same set of lungs. They became soulmates after 70 years together. And suddenly, 50 years ago, we tried to reverse engineer that process and say, we need soulmates first, everything else afterwards. And what we've done by doing that is we've said, you have to be spouse, my security, my safety, my co-earner, my co-helper around the house. Oh, by the way, you got to stay hot and it's super attractive and do weird sex stuff until you're 84 because now we're going to have sex forever. You got to do all of this stuff. And we've saddled our spouses with a weight they cannot carry. Huh. We've dumped everything. We've abandoned our um, our same gendered friends. Like we don't have guys night out anymore. It's once a year now or uh. we churches have to throw a program for it. Um, there's not, we, we've just sucked some of that stuff out and then we've outsourced our, our identities to our kids, right? Like they're a proxy for how good of a parent we are. If they're fast on the track or good at little league or make good grades, then we feel good about our performance as parents. And man, when I'm working that hard, I don't, there's no room for intimacy or desire. And so now we're in a weird world where our church used to give us safety, our community, our tribe Mm. used to give us safety. And now I get that existential safety from my spouse, safety and desire. This is from Esther Perel. Safety and desire don't work well together. And so now instead of, practicing desire, I got to practice safety. So think about this. You date somebody, you Uh see them. And I I saw my wife, I'm like, she's pretty. I want to go out with her. Desire is wired into that. I'm going to practice safety. Is she going to show up on time? Is she going to text me back? Is she going to get mad at me if we have different political opinions? We're practicing safety. Then when we say, I do, we both say, all right, we just handcuffed ourselves to each other. Now for the rest of our lives, we have to be about practicing desire. And we have no models for doing that. I got to practice intimacy. Um, I got to practice leaning into this. And no one's taught us how to do that except for pornography. And that's uh, become the blueprint for everybody and created all kinds of problems in our lives. Wow. Okay. You could, and I, I don't think you're going down this road at all, but you could almost say what you just said is an argument against marriage, right? That marriage can't debate that, but that can't handle that. But that's not where you're going. I would say, the, I would say the opposite. Okay. I would say the tell opposite. me more. I think marriage has been elevated in to its most extraordinary place, okay. both in our homes and in our society and our communities. What I'm advocating for, so he, uh, uh, let's let's use a, um, an analogy here. Just because now we have solar roofs mm-hmm. and air conditioning systems that are very um, that take very little energy, and we have really fascinating hot water systems doesn't mean that we go, oh, forget that, man. I'm just going to go back to a straw hut. <laughs> no. What I need now is some expertise and a new set of tools to utilize this where we are now. That's okay. it. And so now what we need is a, and this is my my chief critique of this church in this season, is we have abandoned issues that people are desperate for, literally desperate. They're dying for them. Like loneliness, like how to make friends, like how to... Um, re-engage sexually with your spouse. Like these things that our, our people are dying for. We've traded that for platitudes and political mumbo jumbo. And I think people are, are literally drowning 
Uh, I mean, they're not drowning. They're starving to death. They are desperate for different, for actual tips and tools on how to live good lives, not more rah-rah speeches. And so we need churches that are going to speak honestly into people's lives today. But no, I am opposite. I am as high. You're not going to find somebody more high on marriage than I am. And I've almost blown mine up three or four times. Like I'm not great <laughs> well, at it. I've, I'm I've still done learning. that as well, John. Um, so, but so, I am, I am high on it. Yeah, yeah. As am I. I mean, three decades into mine, I we seem to be falling in love more and more every year. And yet, I heard Tim Keller years ago, and I think he was quoting a Jewish theologian say that with the death of God in the 19th century, right? Nietzsche, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that people used to put a lot of expectations on God, and now they put them on their spouse. And hence, you yes. fast forward a century, you get the Instagram wedding. Everything has to be perfect. You know, you fulfill me, you complete me, you're my everything. You complete me. Yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. And God is a nice, also had like we're glad to have you around. The traditional family, families used to live in units, right? Multi generational units. So now it's just me and the one point two kids, or whatever that happens to be. And we kind of have everything that our parents had to wait. Like you have in your twenties now, what people waited in their forties to get whether you got that through debt or whether it was just, you know, lifestyle has increased. And yet people arguably are not happier. They're more miserable than they were. So what is the antidote? Like if if you've lost that desire, I think that's really fascinating with Esther Perel about the difference between safety and desire, that they're mutually incompatible, if I got that right. So what are what are some remedies to rekindling romance, to getting out of that crazy thing where you're triggered all the time, whatever you do, you can't pay attention to your kid. Like let, start to start to point us in a, in a better direction, John. Well, when it comes to the desire, when it comes to romance, if we can take our egos and just set them down for a second, I can't think of a funner thing that I have to practice for the rest of my life <laughs> Then sex and desire. Are you freaking kidding me? That's yeah. that's what we're all complaining about. Yeah. But the problem is, is we've turned every sexual encounter, every romantic evening into the Super Bowl. Mm. And we've stopped using the word practice. And if we have a weird night, an off night, or dude, we are going to rock it till the wheels fall off tonight. And we're going to go out to dinner first. And then somebody gets gas. And then the night goes sideways. <laughs> We turn every one of those moments, Carrie, into the Super Bowl. We got nowhere to go from there. Instead of going, oh, man. And then we're back at it the next day. Uh-huh. And Or, hey, I've got this thing that I've always wanted to tell you that I'm kind of into and I've never been able to tell. Dude, I, I, I know couples that have been together t- t- multiple decades and they still don't haven't fully been honest with each other about stuff. Mm. And so if you are holding on to secrets, secrets eat intimacy. It destroys intimacy. Shame eats secrets, right? That's what the great Brene Brown said. Like, shame eats secrets for breakfast. You cannot be intimate if you're holding secrets. And yet we try to balance this intimacy and this sexuality and this romance with our partners we've been with for two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And I'm I'm celebrating two decades this summer. If you had told me, you know what? Old people did. They told me, you think you're in love when you're married. You have no idea. Wait 10 years, wait 20 years. And I used to be like, you are the, you're gross. You're wrinkled. You're gross. And I wish I could describe it, man, but it's true. My marriage is a thousand times better mm-hmm. after two <laughs> near nuclear disasters and, and right. And our, how my idiotic young first two years of marriage. So it happens, but it's something you practice. 
practice, man. We got to take the pressure off, start being honest with each other. Here's the, I, I said this for a joke on a live event. It's been the number one thing that someone has reached out to me and said, hey, uh, can I can I buy this? Huh. It's called the John Deloney Erotic Envelope System. Here's what it is. Go to Walgreens and get 10 white envelopes for a nickel. And then you write five things in them that you are interested in trying. And it could be, I just want to hold hands and watch a show with you for a couple of hours. It could be something you've had in your head that you're like, I don't know, I just want to kind of try this. Whatever it is, and then both of you commit to A, being curious. If you open the envelope and you're like, all right, we're going to try, we're gonna try, <laughs> try this. Or, or if you open it, you're like, I don't know how that's physiologically possible. Instead of being like, what's wrong with you? I'm going to say, <laughs> tell me tell me about this. And we're going to talk about it. And the discussion is intimate, right? Mm. We've just lost play. We've lost joy in one another. And we've just turned each other into these transaction going back to because we're co-managers now. Mm. Your job is to make sure I'm satisfied. My job is to make sure you're satisfied. Just like I turn in my weekly report here at the office every week. And I'm going about my day. And we end up two inches apart and 2,000 miles away from each other on the couch. Me on my iPad, you on your phone. And we are so close and so far away from each other, man. And uh, so bring the, the play, the intimacy, the, all right, I'll try that. Sounds super weird, man. But I'll, I mean, okay, I'll try it. Or, or my wife did this, like, I just want a French kiss. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And she's like, yeah, I missed that. We used to hold hands and just kiss and then go home. I was like, oh man. Okay. So anyway, I wasn't what I was thinking was gonna be in there, but that's what it was. And it was we had a blast. We laughed. It was, we were poking fun and played silly music, whatever. So have some play. Going back to um the the other question about what happens when you feel the wheels falling off. Your heart rate takes off on you, you can't sleep, you start choosing Netflix over intimacy, some of these things that are you start you you can't look at your emails from the at the office because you know, oh gosh, senior pastor probably emailed me. When you find yourself there, there is no, none, zero. There is no long-term behavior change. There is no long-term life change that doesn't happen in the presence of other people, period, full stop. You can white knuckle yourself to lose 50 pounds. That weight will find its way back on your body or it will find its way out in another addiction. Sure. You can get another degree and another degree and another degree and get that fancy job you will go with you. You will still show up that first day on that new job. The only way to truly transform your life is to start with connection. And so those conversations I had with people who loved me and cared about me when I said, okay, I'm not okay. Whew, that's when healing starts. That's when your body can go, ooh, okay, the tribe's back. Now we don't have to be on 360 defense 24-7, 365. Now I can sleep, right? And then now we're off to the races. I wonder if, the problem got worse over the last couple of years because our social support systems kind of broke down. We weren't allowed to meet with each they other. Vanished. Yeah, they vanished. And then the church we knew or the company we knew between the great resignation and the great migration out of church where lots of people quit. It's like, okay, we had a stable social network that maybe needed a lot of work prior to 2020. And then that blew apart. And we're kind of in the ashes going you know, relationally, we're just falling apart. And a lot of us probably have gotten more comfortable being isolated than we were two years ago. Can you talk about so, the, so th Yeah. Talk go about ahead, that. go ahead. No, no, no. It's it, I'm interviewing you. I, I want to hear what, you, what you're thinking about that. <laughs> oh, man. 
I got asked on an interview the other day um, that I think that what happened in the last two years was as bad as 9-11. Hmm. And I hadn't thought about this and my it came out. My instant response was, this is way worse. Hmm. And here's why. After 9-11, whether it was real or not, we had a perceived common enemy. It right. was us versus them. Same team. What happened the last two years is that I was told that my neighbor walking her dog might kill me. Those, the, the, the preschool kids at my Sunday school class might be carrying some disease that will kill us all. So the thing that keeps us whole is other people, relationships. That's why we are in church. That's why the thing is, uh, Jesus got 12 people to walk with him plus all the others, right? We have to have other people and that's what became the weapon was other people. And so the very thing that keeps us alive, it's like becoming allergic to water overnight. You only got four or five days after that. And I don't think we've got comfortable. I think if you take all of that, those feelings and emotions and pain and screaming and yelling and you press it down, you compress it. The other word for compress is to depress. Mm -hmm. I think our bodies have gone into freeze and just said, we're out. I can't keep screaming and running and sounding the alarms between the election and between COVID and masks on and vaccines on and off. And I'm out. Bodies have checked out on us. And I, th I think I said this earlier, but man, Netflix is happy to say, you'll like this. And Amazon will say this, this will help. And it just keeps a steady. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a Laverne and Shirley, like little, little line of just deep, deep, keeping me propped up with the next article and the next thing and the next thing. And yeah, I'm out. I'm just out. And that's when we have to wait out into the wilderness now, man. Now's the season for courage and bravery. Well, and the other thing that made it interesting too is even if you kind of got past the, okay, this person could infect me and you had your bubble for a while. And a lot of people weren't in lockdown for the whole two years. But then somebody that you might say is medically safe, we're going to hang out with this person, turns out to be on the other side of the aisle from you politically or has these other wacko views that you've now seen on social and you're like, I don't know that we can hang out anymore, <laughs> right? So it just seems to it have- became, It became ideological safety too. It yeah. did, yeah, you're ideological just, like, I don't, safety. I don't know you anymore. I don't know. And how many, I mean, I know you've experienced this. How many couples have you talked to over the last two years that are just staring at their spouse going, I don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I, what happened to you? And it's like, I've always been like this. Like, I-, I <laughs> or vice versa, like whatever happened. Like, what do you mean we're not going to do whatever? Or what do you mean you're putting a mask on our kid? Whatever the argument was, I just have heard over and over. Like, I don't know you. Like, yeah. what happened? And we lost, we just became untethered. And then once we became untethered, man, we're just amoebas running around all over the place, just wagging the tails, man. Can you, since we kind of went there and went deep, uh, if you're comfortable, can you talk about how you blew up your marriage? You can talk about both times, one time, but we've all been there before. I almost blew up my marriage and uh, so did my wife at one point. So I'd love to know what <laughs> happened to you. Yeah, for me, it was. it's about a couple of things. One, it's about creating um, a solo universe. These are my plans in my world. And what are you doing to contribute to my world? And whenever you do that in a marriage, you force your partner to do the same thing to survive. They have to create their own world. So I don't think I want to go to this church anymore. To my partner, to my wife meant, oh, I'm going to have to lose all my friends 
And now her alarms are off to the races. Mm -hmm. And I don't like the way this church is treating uh, whatever. And, and again, I was that idiot. I was always finding theological issues with this and that and that and that. Um, in fact, I, we, can, we can put a pin in that one. I have a, a dark moment that was important for me on that. But okay. I kept hopping from church to thing to theological issue to th whatever it was. Because um, again, my identity was being the smart guy in the room, mm -hmm. not being the most safe or loving or gentle person in the room. It was, I'm going to be the smartest. I'll show you guys. And so I created a world that was unsafe for my wife to exist in, which meant she had to get friends that I didn't know about. She had to not lie to me, but not tell me where she was. Like, uh -huh. I'm going to go get coffee with. And then what happens in that gap is that my body begins to feel the gap. I know that we're, we're not aligned. I know that there's an intimacy gap here. But I don't know how to bridge it. And so instead of trying to walk, I don't have the language. I don't, I don't know how to say, hey, I feel like we're separate here. We've gotten off course somewhere. I don't know what to do. So what do I do in the, in the gap? I blame her for it. Kids blame themselves. Adults blame other people. Oh. So I blamed her for, oh, man, she, my wife, she's not even coming home till 7 o'clock tonight. It's ridiculous. Well, because she don't want to listen to me for two hours, drone on about how the world's coming to an end <laughs> and about how our church is terrible and everything. I should. No, she wanted to hang out with her three girlfriends and have an actual laugh every once in a while, right? So in that gap, I become, the it spins tighter and tighter and tight. My world becomes tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's when you find yourself responding to that text that you shouldn't respond to. Mm -hmm. That's when you, the, what the words I used was, I begin to outsource um, laughter to other people. I begin to outsource Oh, she thinks I'm smart at work. Mm. And let me be clear. I never cheated on my wife and nothing like that. Sure. But I know enough to know that I wanted to tell this woman at work my joke because she's going to think it's funny. And I start thinking, oh, oh, oh I'm going to show her this book, right? Not here, Ooh. not here. And I'm pointing to where my wife was sitting. And so that tiny little gap gets wider and wider and it's all innocent. And it's all silly until you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going way, this car has no brakes on it, right? And you have to, uh, for me, it was there was a couple of just throwing the car into park on the highway while we're going down the road and we all smash up against the dashboard. Otherwise, we're going to end up going off a cliff here, right? And so that's where it was for me. Everything started little, everything started small, but it was me outsourcing different parts of my, of who I was. Um, my wife doesn't like my music, but this guy at work likes my music. So we're going to go hang out over there or... My wife doesn't ever want to come meet me for lunch because she had another job, by the way, you <laughs> arrogant idiot. But um, so these three women from work, we'll all go to lunch together. And suddenly I'm telling them about, is that, you hear what I'm saying? So it yeah. just happens super organically and it just moves this way and this way and this way. And you just find yourself out on an island somewhere. So I got, I got fortunate that we never crossed any lines. We couldn't get back from anything like that. But it was very gentle, very, very like, huh. And all because, and I'm 100%, I created a world that was unsafe for my wife to live in. And so then I reacted to her trying to stay alive. We put a pin in something and I want to come back to it. Was it the sort of anger and views on everything and my church was bad and like pol political views? Yeah. Like what, what was that you wanted to unpack? I don't want to let that go. So I have always prided myself on theological gymnastics. Okay. I love them. They're a sport for me, right? I love it. I've, and I've gotten the last 20 years, 15 of which were with faith-based universities with great world-class MDiv professors and then national conferences. The whole, I, I love playing, playing, sparring and um, getting in the ring with 
theological discussion discussions. I love it. And as a professor, my job is always to make sure my students are unstable. I like, this is the way this is. Oh yeah. What about this? My mom is a mythologist. So, um, I got a dad like as a minister now, a mom mythologist. Yes. Okay. M Y T H. So I was, I remember going to her office and being like, Hey, how come when I was a kid, you didn't tell me there was 20,000 flood narratives throughout history. Y'all left that one off the flannel graph when I was a kid. And she's like, you want to have this conversation? So like, I love that. And then I brought that home. And so the analogy I use is mixed martial arts fighters or professional boxers. Take Mike Tyson. When he went to the gym, he put his gloves on, he put his mouthpiece in and he hit other grown men for, for a living. And then when the when his practice was over, he took the gloves off, took the mouthpiece out, and he could not go hit the woman at the grocery store sure. when she didn't have the right peanut butter. I never took the gloves off. And so I took those theological sparring things with me to every church I went to, to every Sunday, poor Sunday school teaching volunteer that I was like, oh, this guy's outgunned. I'm coming for him. Oh. I did it to my I did it to my wife. Oh. I did it to my family. And here's what happened. Here was my my the the bell ringing moment. When I was a kid, we, my parents taught me, you stick it out with a church. You say we're in, you're in. My, the great Richard Beck, who's a great friend and mentor of mine, said, what if we lived our lives, especially when it comes to neighborhoods and churches, as though we could never move? Uh, what conversations would we have that would be different? What meals would we have? What things would we just get over instead of running all the time? So, when I was a kid, we stayed at the same place over and year after year, the big fights, the church splits, all the drama. We stayed and we stayed and we stayed and we stayed. And then when we had, my wife and I experienced a bunch of miscarriage, it was a mess, right? And then my daughter comes out of nowhere four years later. Like we have my son and my daughter shows up. I called a couple of men who were in their seventies, maybe even their eighties that had been with me when I was a child at that church back in Houston. And I called them and said, I just need you to know. Some of the lessons you passed along 30 years ago to me, I'm staring at my baby girl now, and I'm going to treat her differently because of you. You have impacted my family tree. And here was the moment. I remember thinking, oh, no, my intellectual arrogance, my decision to monopolize theological drama over who's allowed in this building. And, oh, yeah, you hate that group. Well, I love that group in the Bible. I have robbed my son of those relationships because he's never been at a church more than three years. We move every three years. And that's when we moved to Nashville four years ago. I took a job at Belmont University here. When I moved to Nashville to take that job, I looked at my wife and said, you pick any box. I don't care what box it is. I want to be around great people and we're going to love this community. And this is going to be where we go to church until our kids are out of here. No more. I'm not, No more drama. And it's been great and it's been hard and it's been fun, but my attitude has been totally different, a thousand percent different. It's about relationships, not right and wrong. And I tell you what, I don't agree with a lot of my fellow members and we have lots of hot dogs together and we sit by lots of fires together and we have lots of times with our kids playing together because that's what's important, not mm. the nonsense, man. So one of the things I've noticed and you've hinted at this, and I'm, I'm not saying that's part of your story, but I picked up so much anger online, anger about politics, oh, anger about yeah. theology, like just people who enjoy lacerating other people, tearing people down. And it seems to have accelerated. 
And underneath that is a, a, a quasi-militaristic, almost like, you know, I am so jacked. I got my weapons ready to go. If anybody messes with me, I'm going to blow them away <sighs> kind of thing. I see that testosterone culture really particularly strong in people, leaders who are 30 and under. Do you see that? And what is driving that? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I think there's a couple of things. One, I think the lowest hanging fruit, and you're going to get some mean uh, internet comments about this, what I'm about to say. So okay. point in my direction, it's fine. <laughs> is um, we're, what, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years into the Fortnite generation. We've got a group of people who've, won't, who've grown up in a first-person shooter game. My dad's got some studies that he showed me about it alters your brain chemistry. These wow. first-person shooter games are simply different now because um, you are in it. And there is an action. And then you move that towards access to, um, it used to be, I don't want to say it's less than noble because I think what many of these men and women are doing is incredibly noble. But if, well, I was going to apply to FBI and the CIA right out of college. It's suggested do not tell people you are applying. This is between you and your government. This is, you are entering into service the moment you hit send on this application. Wow. You join the Navy SEALs. This is for you and your team and your government. Now it is, uh, my, my granddad joined the service to serve his country. Now we join the service to get um, four years of college paid for. And so our, the, way we do, the way we go into the military, the way we do this is about these platforms now. And so you've got much more many. I mean, I didn't know a Navy SEAL growing up. Now there's 500 of them with a podcast and a story and a t-shirt line, right? So, um, and again, oh my gosh, those guys are incredible. And there's so much we can learn from them. But there's a, this brings me to the third thing. So we've got a picture of what this looks like that we haven't had before. We've got a generation of kids growing up on Fortnite playing Army every single night of the week for hours and hours and hours. And then underneath it all, we have no models of what a true man actually looks like. Mm. We have no picture of that. And so when in, and there's a generation of men who have been told you will shut your mouth. Anything that comes out of your mouth is wrong or broken or deceitful or meant to hurt. You be quiet. We're going to medicate you. We're going to settle you down. We're going to put you in this box over here. Stop. You are what's wrong with everything. And then somebody comes along and says, Oh yeah, you want me to show you what else is awesome. And it's such an appealing, appetizing alternative to take your Ritalin, be quiet, you shut your mouth, nobody cares what you think anymore, you're the part of the problem, to shoot this and watch what happens, right? It's a great counter-argument to that. I hadn't thought about that. I'll have to take some time to unpack that. And huh. what do you think, man? I just rattled that off the top of my head. What do you think? No, you know what? Like, you know, I've got a, and, and my kids haven't, to my knowledge, shown particularly violent tendencies, but they grew up playing video games, you know, Call of Duty, that kind of thing as well. And we worried about that as parents, like very much worried about that. And I'm also Canadian. So there's a certain point at which Canadians, <laughs> exactly, John, like we don't and understand I, the gun I, I'm culture. I'm Texan. You're Texas. I'm Texan. So you're Texas and Tennessee. That's about as heart of gun culture as you can get. So I mean, but here's what's funny about it, it that I don't you get. You know who talks about guns and you know who talks about guns in, in, in Texas? No. Nobody. Really? Nobody does. Because everybody has them. No. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's just like a, like, that, I expect that, I, I, that grandmother's got one in her purse. Like, it just is an is. And 
Um, I had a great professor. She was from Chicago, and she said the problem with the gun conversation is we talk past each other. Because in Chicago, the only people I knew with guns were bad people. Ah. And so when somebody says, I want to give guns to everybody, I'm thinking, what are y'all crazy? And in Texas, my grandmother has one. And so when you say everybody with a gun's evil, I'm thinking my grandma's not. And so we just talk past each other. Mm. Um, but I, I, there is a, um, I th- there's an alt narrative, which is, you're, in fact, you're not the problem. You're the solution. And here's how you are a part of the solution. And then you pump that message into somebody's head over and over. Yeah, and I wonder if it does get down to powerlessness to a certain extent Mm. that this is how I express myself. It's just, it's really interesting. I speak a lot in Texas, so I'm sure the next time the plane lands, I'm going to get a lot (laughs) of opinions on what I just said. So just know. I don't think think so at all. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand. So let's, let's work on this to get us to a place of solution. Sex is dying in marriage. Uh, anxiety is increasing. Your body is keeping score. You've got accumulated trauma, secondary trauma. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Secondary yeah. trauma. Um, and you're trying to lead. And you're trying to lead a divided people that don't like each other, whose community has died for about 10 different reasons. What is the path out? Like, how do you begin to undo this meth mess and find yourself? If there's meth too, we can talk about that some other day. I don't know. This okay. mess. I was gonna say that's a great way to start, man. Yeah, that's a great way. <laughs> Just opening question on the next episode. Um, what about math? No, I meant to say you get math. a lot done in that first week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, how do you begin to <laughs> to trace that out? And like, you've obviously found a different operating system. You've found a different way to live, and I'm sure that's going to continue to evolve, right? Like, you're gonna you're gonna be different at 50 than you are in your 40s, but but how do we begin to, to extract ourselves from this nightmare that a lot of us are living? I think you've, you, these steps kind of go in a loop. And man, I'll tell you, the, the thing I hate more than anything is like being up at 2 a.m. and there's like seven steps to becoming a better pom-pom thrower, like nine steps to losing 40 pounds. Like, man, if, that's so reductive. I, I can't stand uh-huh. those things. So this these paths, I'm gonna these things I'm going to lay out here are not... Um, they're not like do these seven things. And then all of a sudden you're, that's not how life works, man. Right. Cause the moment you get your head screwed on straight, you're going to get a call and you're going to step out and mom's going to tell you she's got cancer or your buddy's going to say, Hey, my wife just left me. I need you. And so life just works that way. What these, what I'm going to give you is a set of principles okay. um, that you go back to over and over and over again. Um, and let me, let's, I just want to stop there for a second. I think it's the great Rich Mullins that said the worst part about being a Christian is that it's every single day. That there's not a, there's not a, there's not, like I can't memorize all the the great Abraham books and then like wake up the next day and like be good to go. I got to go back and go again. I got to go again. Or there's no workout you can do on Monday that you never have to work out again for the rest of the month. It's just not how it works. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't it be awesome? So the way towards wellness is from the the Nagoski sisters. Wellness is a way of being. It's not a state. It's not a place you get to. It's a thing you do. And so I think first and foremost is you have to go to the mirror and you have to acknowledge these stories that are just going on and that are on loop. I'm not okay. I got to say that out loud. I am over my head. I am exhausted. I want to have sex again. And I'm part of that problem. I don't like that I've put on 72 pounds. I, whatever the thing you are wrestling with or things for most of us, 
you have to look in the mirror and have courage and say, I got to own this story. Um, and then you got to own reality, man. And that's the, like, I wanted this life and here's where I am. And most of us can't do that. That's a hard, hard thing to do. What do you actually want? How many people got into that question? Yeah. That's, you know what? Of all the questions sitting with, with my research, with fancy pants on, on fancy pants, mental health towards I'm, I'm holding a single mom in the middle of the night because her son just took his life and I'm with the police officers and she can't breathe. Nobody has been able to answer that question over the last 20 years. What do you want? And we find ourselves like, I just want to be a youth minister because that was an easier job. And I liked my youth minister. He meant a lot to me. And suddenly I'm executive pastor at an 800 person church because it paid. What am I doing? And I, they, you know what I mean? I don't even like this job. I like the house and the car, but what? And so anyway, like, what do you want? You got to acknowledge reality. I wanted something else and here's where I'm at. Or I really wanted this and I'm not there yet. And then the most important thing is you got to get, and that's when you got to reach out and get connected. And for some of us, that's a professional. For some of us, it's reaching out to Carrie and your, your coaching groups and saying, I don't even know how to do friendship anymore. It's not safe. And here, here's where I, my experience working with pastors, they get completely blown up is they're given two people that are their quote unquote go-to guys or their accountability guys or their whatever. And they're also elder, they're their boss too. And so I think about that in the, in the, in the public sector. Like if my boss came and was like, all right, you tell me all the things you're struggling with, what you're screwing up with, the things that are making you not great at your job. Just tell me. Like, no, right. you're the last person on earth I'm going to yeah, tell. Yeah, because I'm the guy who decides whether you get a raise or whether you stay at this company or church or not, right? Like That's, that's exactly yeah, totally right. Or who stuff. gets edged out when we do the next building campaign or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so, or I really I really don't think that this, this political party, I don't think they're right on this topic. Huh. <laughs> I don't. I don't, I don't hate that group of people. Am I supposed to hate them? Cause I don't. In fact, I read this. Oh, so there's nowhere to go. And what pastors do a lot is they just swallow it. They just sit on it. Mm-hmm. And that trauma is cumulative, right? It adds up, it adds up, it adds up. And so you got to find people that you can be fully known, fully loved. Can I tell the good stuff and the bad stuff and the dark stuff? Can I, sh- people who will show up for me at 2 a.m. I got to have those people. And then, and only then will our brains go, whew. All right, now we can do the other stuff like lose weight or start sleeping. We can start doing the other stuff now because we got our tribe back and that's how healing goes. And then you're about changing your thoughts and changing your actions. But I really believe everything comes down with owning your stories and then getting connected. That's where, that's the- When you look back on the last decade of your life, you know, from that sort of crisis you hit in your mid thirties, what were one or two inflection points? Because you're right, that's a lot of work. And for the last 16 years, I've been doing a lot of work in my life. And, you know, there are people who are like, well, that's great. I don't have 16 years. So if if there's like an Archimedes lever, if there's one or two things that you say, hey, if you want to start, like start here. It's a long journey. You didn't get this way overnight. You're not going to get out of it overnight. It is a journey. But if there's one or two things you should pay attention to now, to get some love back in your marriage, the anxiety out of your body, the polarization, demonization that you're doing all the time online out of your system, to quit these habits. What what are one or two things where people could get started today or tomorrow on that? I'll give you three. Okay. And they're quick. Great. Number one, call somebody, go visit somebody in person. That's mm. that's that's above all. And say the words, hey man, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. 
an um, in-person. I magic. just want to, I want to underline that so yes. people don't miss it. I drove three hours. I was so paranoid. I thought people were listening to my calls. Turns out they were, but it, that's, that's, that's for a later story. But I thought I was so paranoid. I was, I was out of my mind, Carrie. And, um, I got in my car and drove three hours and I walked into my buddy. Um, it's one of the most greatest blessings of my life. He happened to be an MD. I've got another buddy who's like an assistant manager at Napa Auto Parts. I could have gone to see it. That my life would be way different if I'd gone to see him. But I went to see my buddy who's an MD and I walked in his office. And hey, when I showed up everywhere, I was always a loud mouth, like, hey, I always wanted the party to get going. And so I walked in, I didn't have an appointment. And I, and he said, Deloney, what are you doing? And he says he still gets goosebumps when he thinks about it. I pointed at him and said, hey, brother, I'm not okay. And he said something was so chilling about the way you said that. He said, Sit. I didn't tell my wife I went. I didn't tell my boss. I didn't tell anybody. I just got in the car and drove. And he sat with me for two and a half hours. And it was one of the, it, that was the moment. So number one, go to somebody, if at all possible, could be a therapist. It could be a pastor that's sure. not a ding dong that you trust. Go to a human and say, I'm not okay. The second thing is, this is a courageous step because some spouses won't take it. But tell your spouse these magic words. I have made this home unsafe and I'm sorry. I'm going to work on healing. And I made my house unsafe, not because I was waving guns around or throwing knives, but because I was radioactive. I was um, a sleeping bear. I was reading internet all day, conspiracy theory and lecturing and giving my thoughts on everything. I made a world where my wife was not safe to say, I don't like that. Or I don't want to eat that. Or I don't want to watch that movie. She couldn't say those words. Not because I was mean or yell or whatever. I just made it unsafe. So I've made this place unsafe and I want to heal. Often people will go to their spouse and say, I'm not okay. And they dump that burden onto their spouse. Mm. It's my wife's job to make me okay. It's not. They cannot carry that. That's your job. They can walk with you. They can hold your arms up in the desert, but they can't fix you. So instead of saying, hey, I'm not okay, say, I've made this place unsafe and I'm sorry. I'm going to get well. And then the third one is, uh, what is the third one? I forgot the third one. It was going to be the best. I'm sure it the was first one is fantastic. Oh, oh, here it is. Okay. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. This is awesome thing. I didn't know about this until just a few months ago. All of our devices, like iPhones, iPads, computers. Did you know they have this awesome thing on the side of them called an off button, and you can just push it, and they just shut off. It just oh. shuts off. It just turns off. It's amazing. And it? just turn it off. Turn it all off. Turn it off. And then you're going to find yourself, my buddy called, he was the CIO of, of a fancy pants company. And he calls and he's like, all right, Deloney, I turned off all my devices and now I'm staring at my daughters. What do I do now? <laughs> and I was like, well, this, here's where we are. Let's start from there. Right. And like, we're going to start having conversations. And can I tell you the magic, Carrie? Here's the magic. The other night I was here doing media until real late at the office. I think I left here at like eight o'clock and I got home at eight 30. My kids go to bed super early because we're psychopaths about sleep in my house and i go by and i i like to pray over my kids door or i, I want to whisper into their rooms good night my daughter who's six her light was still on so i opened her door gently to see if she just fallen asleep with the light on she's reading a book she's not really reading she's just looking at the pictures and she said daddy and i looked at her and in a split second i said i challenge you right now if you dare to a game of air hockey down in our basement. I said, do you want to get demolished? And her eyes got as big as silver dollars and she hopped up and goes, you're dead. And she, I walked over to the bed. She got on my shoulders. I carried her down. 
dude, we played for seven minutes. We talked trash. She was like, oh, how do you like that? I mean, my six-year-old daughter was letting fly. It was incredible. And she beat me. And then she got back on my shoulders. We went back up in. I tucked her in. She'll remember that story for the rest of her life. And more importantly, I will too. And uh -huh. there was no movie night, no go-kart night. There was seven minutes of something special between a dad and his daughter. And that's what, it, that's what we need, man. Turn the things off and connect with those who love us right there in our world. That's so good. You know, I don't know whether, and I don't know whether it's a good thing that I'm watching this or not, but I'm one of the billions of people watching Yellowstone right now. We're slowly working our way through that series. Oh, and it's incredible. It is. And I'll tell you, you know what, you know what gets me is when you see John Dutton just looking at the sunrise or the sunset, no device, mm. nothing. And he's just there for half hour, an hour or two hours watching things. And I'm like, oh, I need more of that in my life. I just need to go watch sunrise or watch sunset or just stare at some trees or the sky or something. And, and again, you know, unplugged. I think that's so good. John, this feels like a round one to me. I'd love to have you back at some point. This has been fascinating. We got to a couple of the questions that I had intended uh, to do that. So tell us about your book and then tell us about where people can find you online these days. I mean, I think the it's, it's a deep dive into some of the stuff we've talked about. Um, if I had to describe the book in one way, I would say this. We've been given really two paths forward. One is you are your feelings and you are your emotions and you invent truth along the way. It's unfolding before you as you see it and perceive it. And if you feel uncomfortable, then that means whatever is in front of you is wrong and it needs to change. The other path we've been given is Forget your feelings. In fact, feelings and emotions are a character flaw. It's a sign of weakness. Grind it, kill it, crush it, go get it, drag it home. That's life. Go get what's yours. And both of those things are pathological. They're both insane. And so this book is really the new third way. It's you have to take grasp of what has happened to you, what you've done, the things that you've been told, the stories that have been laid out before you, the fact that people treated you differently just because of the color of your skin, the abuse, whatever, you have to deal with that. And where the story stops for us most in this culture is you got to wake up the next morning and say, now what? What right. comes next? And so the book is, this. the back half of the book is, so what do we do now? What does healing look like? And walk people step by step. I've worked with academics my whole career. And one of the most humbling things coming to work for Dave Ramsey is I've just spoke with, just talked back and forth with theorists and brilliant people who love, love, love people. And coming here, Dave's mission is I want to talk to the overroad trucker. And I'm going to talk to that guy that runs a steel plant. I want to talk to that single mom with three kids just trying to figure out what to do. And I realized over the last 20 years, I've been speaking over people. And so this oh. book is my attempt to really distill down mental health and relationships into something that everybody can understand, starting with myself. This book's a, a love letter to myself, really. Um, and so that's 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 what the book is. And um, it's about 10 years in the making. So I'm excited to get it out there. And they can just go to johndeloney.com okay. to, to pick it up. And the book is called Own Your Past, Change Your Future. Dr. John Deloney, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Hey, can I tell you before we go? 100%. Thank you for putting for putting good stuff out into the world. Huh. Like I'm... I'm there's a lot of people who do these podcasts to sort of take someone else's light and make sure it shines on them. And you're not that guy. You're trying to help people. And I'm so, so we need more voices like you on the world. So I'm grateful for Thank it. Thank you. you. That's very humbling. And um, it's a privilege to be able to do this. And 
You know, and I think we've all been down that road. We all have versions of the same story. And uh, I'm really interested in redemption, really interested in changing the narrative, really interested in trying to help people find their way back. And I think hearing other people's stories and getting behind the scenes. And you're right. I mean, a lot of what we talked about, you cover in your book, but you went deep and you went personal and you went transparent. And I'm really excited to see you as part of the Ramsey team and excited to learn from you, um, not only today, but in the future, John. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Well, I hope that one was good for your soul. And uh, for those of you who are looking just to rekindle some of the fundamentals of personal growth, your marriage, all of those things, well, I hope that was helpful. Hey, we got a great uh, bunch of episodes coming up, but I want to thank our partners. Pro Media Fire is bringing this to you for free. And if you haven't checked them out yet, well, maybe today's the day. You can apply for their growth program by going to promediafire.com slash growth. And I've known Tony Morgan and the Unstuck Group for years. And if you're looking for a way to help your church reach more people, maybe you should contact them. Go to theunstuckgroup.com slash start. That's theunstuckgroup.com slash start. Well, next episode, we've got Tim Schurer. He spent almost a decade of his career launching two brands, Story Brand and Business Made Simple. As COO, alongside New York Times bestselling author Donald Miller, who's also been on the podcast, he also worked at Tom's and Apple. Fascinating background. And we're going to have a great conversation with him. And well, here's an excerpt. Because there's some days Don just needs a yes man. He just needs somebody to be like, cool, let's figure it out. Yeah. Here we go. He needs that sometimes. Ah. But there's also times that he needed to lean into my, you know, desire to slow things down. And so I don't think that you ever really perfect that. You just learn to live in the tension between those things. So that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, a wonderful conversation with Susan Kane. She has an amazing new body of work on bittersweet, the good and the, um, well, rather sad and tragic of life and how that works together. Albert Tate, Daniel Pink, Seth Godin, is back on the podcast. Just line that up. Ramit Sethi, Andy Crouch, Karen Gordon, Chad Veach, Nona Jones, and so many more. And so you get that automatically if you subscribe. And again, closing in on 500 episodes, if you haven't yet left a rating and review, please do so. We would absolutely love that. And uh, if you like this episode, you can get a lot more of my content by going to theartofleadershipacademy.com. Every day, people are like, hey, can we connect? And the answer is, Generally speaking, where I'm connecting these days is in the Art of Leadership Academy. So if you ever wanted to connect personally and you want to connect with a group of, well, hundreds, almost a thousand leaders inside the Art of Leadership Academy who are doing what you do, who are actually supportive, who don't have that negative vibe that you get online so often, and who actually want to see each other win, and a whole team of mentors and all my premium content and monthly live coaching and a whole lot more. It's just $397 a year, and it is at theartofleadershipacademy.com. Uh, I would just love to hang out with you there. And uh, I'm meeting so many podcast listeners inside. I, they, I message everybody when they join, and what do they write back? I've been listening to your podcast for years. I've been listening to your podcast for months. I've been listening to your podcast since episode one. And if that's you, and you want to connect more personally, but but not just with me, if you just want to grow as a leader and you want to really make this a year of your personal development, 
That's why we do the Art of Leadership Academy. So if you're curious, check it out. Go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. It's for business leaders and church leaders. And I'll see you inside there. And in the meantime, well, we'll do another episode of this. How does that sound? Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.